We're, uh, uh, our uh, co-pastor Emily is uh, visiting family with her wife Rachel and uh, uh, is gone this Sunday and she'll be gone next Sunday too. Uh, we and uh, about a handful of us are going to the Gay Christian Network uh, conference in Houston later this week and I'll be, I'll be flying back early for, uh, for church. So um, we're starting a new uh, series uh, uh, based on the book of Revelations. And the title of this series is Getting Over Ourselves, Visions of an Exiled Prophet. So I've been as befuddled by the book of Revelations, the, the uh, last book in the Bible, as the next person. Um, it's it's um, especially befuddling to uh, modern people because it's a genre that doesn't exist anymore. It's a type, a form of writing with its own rules and conventions that essentially isn't used anymore. Um, and it's called apocalyptic. Um, the other name for the book of Re- Revelations is the apocalypse. Um, but the thing about apocalypse, it's really important to remember, is that apocalyptic writing always is produced by an oppressed minority group within the context of like an all-powerful empire. So it uses a kind of code to critique and subvert the empire. And that's the, one of the reasons for why it's so uh, confusing to us modern, because we don't actually know the code. And w- when we try to like break the code, usually we're just making kind of guesses. Some, some things are clear clear in their symbolism, something are not. There's just too much cultural difference for us to be very confident about exactly what it meant in its, in its time. But it's all about subverting or undermining the power of the empire. So uh, the book of Revelations was not written to or for people in power. Um, it was written to and for people who were oppressed. Um, this is, I think, why some of the most ridiculous interpretations of the book of Revelations come from my demographic, uh, white American males born in the 20th century. So in the 1970s, uh, that decade, the top nonfiction book of the 1970s was Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey, which was one of these wild interpretations by a guy like me. Um, the, uh, the, uh, more recently, I think it's, what is it, the Left Behind series of books, which turned into a movie starring uh, Nicolas Cage. 65 million books of living uh, the uh, Left Behind series. In that series, uh, not to give away the ending, but the G- G- <laughs> Jesus and his followers come back armed with Uzis and mow down the infidels. So it's like it's a particular take on the book of Revelation that's pretty ridiculous. Um, so if you want a, an entry point to the uh, book of Revelations, a good place to start is the, um, the most accessible, the most inspiring to anyone kind of uh, portions of the book of Revelation, really, in a sense, the heart of the book of Revelation are the worship scenes, the heavenly worship scenes that are that, that, that punctuate the book from the beginning to the end. There are a number of worship scenes, like pictures of what is going on in the heavenly realms when we worship. That is the heart of the book of Revelations. This word apocalypse, uh, the other, other term for the book of Reve- Revelation, has come to mean an event of horrible destruction, you know, apocalyptic this, apocalyptic that. It's kind of a movie genre now. But the word simply means uncover, like drawing back the curtain. That's the literal meaning of the word apocalypse. 
The worship scenes in Revelations are a glimpse of what's really going on behind the scenes, behind the curtain when people gather to worship Jesus. Now, we know that what meets the naked eye uh, in life is only part of the story, right? There's always a behind the scenes that's more intense than our ordinary perceptions. So, you know, I got a microscope as a kid. I must have been in late elementary school. It was just the coolest thing. And, you know, you prick your finger and you put a drop of blood on the slide and you put that little plastic cover over the drop of blood and you put it under the microscope and voila! Uh, an entire world that I didn't know existed, I could visualize red blood cells with a cell membrane and a nucleus. I think I could even see the little mitochondrial structures. And I'm not sure if I could see that or not, but it's a long time ago. But it, each little cell is a little oxygen transfer factory chugging away. And it's all in a drop of my blood. The behind the scenes was like way more intense and way more interesting than just what I could perceive with the naked eye. So science, though, is not the only tool for peering behind the curtain. Uh, the great religious traditions are all include mystical revelations that attempt to do the same thing, but with a different vocabulary and a different set of rules. So the thing is, you don't have to be a mystic to experience like a shift in your perceptions that gives you a peek at the extraordinary that lies behind the ordinary things that we interact with all the time. You've probably had that experience out in nature sometime. When a, just a particular view, there's some kind of perceptual shift inside of you and you're just aware of the grandeur, the glory of nature. It's more, it's more captivating. It moves you more deeply than it ordinarily would. And this, this happens in worship. I, um, I'm on Facebook, and uh, Molly Morton, who's one of our one of our um, A Sunday School teachers, um, uh, was at the Christmas Eve service. We had Christmas Eve uh, this year, our first ever Christmas Eve service in the uh, sanctuary at St. Clair's. It was really generous of them to just let us use their sanctuary for Christmas Eve. And Molly wrote this about the service on her Facebook post. She said, I guess I should have seen it coming given my recent emotional streak, but I was surprised to find myself crying during our Christmas Eve service. I'm just going to chalk it up to the sweet, joyful children dancing in the aisle, or maybe it was knowing that our little sea of candlelight is one of many in churches lighting up the darkness tonight. Maybe it was seeing a beautiful little family that looked relieved, like maybe they just found their church home. Maybe it was my too-cool-for-church daughter singing sweetly and earnestly, or the tired mamas with their toddlers around their necks rocking and singing. Maybe it's seeing all these little things like tiny sparks of joy and hope and light, light that the darkness couldn't, can't, won't overcome. Yeah, let's go with that. And not that I'm a basket case or pregnant. I'm not. Merry Christmas. Is there... Is there... But, you know, she was experiencing something. Molly came into church with her normal preoccupations, her normal perceptions, and, and she saw things outside of herself, and there was a spark, and, and she was moved. This is what worship can do for us. Worship can get us over ourselves. 
So one of the most beautiful things that happens when you engage in worship, for at least a moment, you are allowed the freedom of getting over yourself. The word actually ecstasy kind of a mystical word that's like the top word of experience in worship. Ecstasy simply means to stand outside oneself. Ecstasy. So worship is the heart of revelations. That's why our series title is Getting Over Ourselves, Visions of an Exiled Prophet. So with the help of Eugene Peterson, I think is a better guide than Tim LaHaye in the Left Behind series. Eugene Peterson, Presbyterian minister who translated the Bible, calls it, I think, The Message. Um, his book on Revelation, it's more of a devotional book, is called Reverse Thunder. Highly recommended. Terrific guide to the book of Revelation. Let's, uh, let's set this up and form by some of his, his insights. So John, the author of the book, we don't know if it's John the Apostle, John the early, uh, uh, one of the twelve, or some other John, uh, part of the convention of the apocalyptic literature, is, is often written in the name of a famous person. So it could have been someone else writing in John's name. Uh, John has a set of visions that occur on the Lord's Day, which is significant. It's the first day of the week. And for the Gentile Christians in the early Jesus movement, it was the day of worship, our Sunday. And John is writing with an awareness of seven uh, small church communities that are all located in Asia Minor in uh, modern-day uh, Western Turkey, as a matter of fact. And the first visions ha that he has have to do with messages for each one of these seven churches. The letter to the seven churches is called, if you're a little more familiar with the book of Revelations in chapters 2 and 3, um, and he knows that these letters, if, if he can get them out to these churches by courier or whatever, will be read to these churches when they gather on the Lord's day. So think about it. He's exiled. He's alone. He's, he, you know, Christianity is a very social religion. The understanding of God is social. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Every Jesus follower is part of a band of Jesus followers. A very social religion. And this important practitioner, John, is by himself. He's exiled. He's alone from other Jesus followers on the island of Patmos. On the Lord's Day, when he knows everyone else is worship, he gets these messages for the churches and he's imagining that they will be read to the churches if they can get out on the Lord's Day when they're gathering together. They didn't have like a weekly update email thing going. And immediately following these prophecies, um, letters to the churches in, in uh, Revelation th uh, chapter 2 and 3, we have the first behind-the-scenes vision of the heavenly worship, which occupies uh, two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5. It's very spectacular. It's, it's graphic. But it actually includes all the elements of like an ordinary Sunday worship service. There's the lamb at the, who was slain at the center of the throne, you know, representing the communion elements. There's a gathering of worship. There's multitudes singing. There's an opening of a scroll, which would, would have been like the Torah scroll or the scrolls of the apostolic writings that we call the New Testament that would have been read during the worship. When we're, the message here is that when we gather for worship, we're actually joining in 
to this same worship that he saw in this mystical vision. It's like we're dipping our canoes into a stream of worship that has been flowing before we got there and which will continue to flow after we take our canoes out of the water. So worship is all about a joining in experience. You, you don't really experience the heart of worship until you kind of let yourself go a little bit and join in when you participate in worship with others. That's when worship actually happens. And knowing the behind the scenes of worship uh, intensifies actually our experience of worship. So let me, let's just uh, read Revelation chapter 4. And I'll summarize chapter 5. Um, in this new Bible that I got at our church anniversary. Thank you. It's a really nice Bible. I'm, I'm reading through the Bible in a year this year with my new Bible. And it's, it's great. Except I need my reading glasses uh, for it. So I'll just read um, Revelations 4 here. After this, I looked. And there before me was a door standing open in heaven... And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet, so it's a summoning voice, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. This is classic like moving into a mystical experience language. At once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had the face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, O Lord and our Lord and God, to receive glory and power and honor, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. 
And then he goes into Revelations 5 in which the lamb seated on the throne, a lamb like one who had been recently slain is at the center of the throne. And then there's even more as the landscape widens, the view widens. There's like a multitude, a multitude like this choir, the angelic and human singing and worshiping the lamb. That's our first peak into heavenly worship in the book of Revelations. So there's several elements in this behind the scenes worship. We're just going to take really the first of these uh, today. And, and that's the centrality of the throne. Um, worship recenters us. You know, we're, we're always organizing our lives around something. And then we come to worship. And when worship is working, we get recentered. We stop being centered on the thing we're centered on, the problems that we're working or the concerns we have about ourselves or the sense of responsibility we feel for the world. We're re-centered on Jesus when we come to worship. Um, the throne, you notice in, in Revelations 4, is surrounded. Um, it's surrounded first by the rainbow um, and then it's surrounded by the 24 elders um, and then the four living creatures representing all the creatures of creation. So when, I think the first song we sang is actually today was probably derived from this vision. Every creature in heaven on earth, you know, that refrain, this idea that all creatures are worshiping and we're joining into the worship of the whole creation. That's derived from Revelations 4 here. Um, so there, there's this... Um, concentric circles around the throne. So the throne is situated in the physical center of the scene and the throne is very obviously the center of attention. So you've got peals of thunder and late flashes of lightning issuing from the throne that you know guarantees that everyone's attention is going to be on the throne. And then at the center of the throne. So this is like the center of the center. In Revelation 5, you have an unusual picture. There was a lamb who had been slain. And of course, in the code of the early Christian movement, everyone would have understood this was the vulnerable Rabbi Jesus, the Messiah, who has become the center of attention now for these Gentiles who were being gathered in western Turkey, the little city, cities and villages, and were now uh, focused on Jesus, this Jewish Messiah. Um, the word throne dominates the whole thing, right? The word throne, I think, appears 16 times in this opening uh, vision of worship in Revelations. Um, one time it refers to the throne of the 24 elders. All the rest, it refers to the throne of God with the lamb who is slain at the center of that throne. So, Here's, here's a symbol that we can be fairly confident of in Revelation. Throne represents the seat of power and responsibility to govern. I suppose if we were a mega church and we had like big screens and advertising, the title of this series would be like Game of Thrones or something cute like that, you know. But alas, you know, 
thank God. Uh, <laughs> yes, the responsibility to, to govern is what a throne is all about. The one on the throne runs things and orders things and is responsible to keep things together, especially in the Roman Empire sense. The emperor like held everything together by the force of his armies. Responsibility is all about. So I was a father um, of two by the age of 20. My part-time job while I was a student uh, at University of Michigan, the School of Nursing, was working the suicide prevention hotline. So I got climb, uh, acclimated early on to having a lot of responsibility. Um, Ann Arbor is the kind of town that has a lot of people who have a lot of responsibility and, and all that. One of the, response, the, the features of responsibility is uh, vigilance. So when you're responsible, you're supposed to be vigilant, right? You're on duty. You're keeping watch. You're keeping an eye on things. If you run a small business, I mean, it's 24-7. You're just supposed to be vigilant all the time. And this, this vigilance part of responsibility is symbolized in the vision of the seven blazing lamps, the seven spirits representing the Holy Spirit. Um, in the ancient world, lamps were conceived of as eyes. Jesus said, the eye is the lamp of the body. So that's like a representation of the vigilance that is part of being responsibility. So you're probably feeling tired as I'm talking about responsibility. I mean, you know, responsibility and the vigilance that comes with it can be very tiring. That's the thing about responsibility. It's not just like the work, like just the tasks, but it's the feeling of responsibility, the knowledge that you're responsible for something is like a weight of its own that's a little intangible. Like if you've ever had a job where you're on call, back in the day you had the little beeper when you were on call, you know, you, you might not be doing any of the tasks of the job, but you feel just that weight of responsibility knowing that like if something comes up, you're responsible to respond to it. And you're, you're never as relaxed when you're on call. You've always, you're just carrying that weight of intangible weight of responsibility. I mean, the, the word itself, response, ability. If something happens, if something goes wrong, if something needs attention, it's up to you to respond because you have the ability to respond, responsibility. So when you have responsibility, and as human beings, we all do, it's easy to fall into an illusion that goes along with it. The, the illusion is this, it's all up to me. It's all up to me. Everything depends on me. It's all on my shoulders. I mean, how often do we say, it's on my shoulders? No, we say, it's all on my shoulders. So um, the week after um, my late wife, Nancy, died uh, in 2012, the week after the funeral, and, you know, the kids had all gathered, and one by one they went back. You know, they all lived in different places, and adult kids and all that. They left one by one. Finally, there's Grace, who's 19, the youngest, 
And I drove her to the airport. To, she was flying back to D.C. She went to, it was a, a freshman or sophomore, I can't remember, at American University at the time. Mike and Judy were still there, but they were getting ready to go to the airport to fly off to San Francisco where they live. And as I went into the bedroom to go to bed, I realized that I didn't have my cell phone with me. But I needed to have my cell phone with me because Grace is, you know, 19 years old and she's, you know, college student. She's a teenager and, you know, she needed something or whatever and wanted to call her parents. You need to, one of the parents has to have the cell phone on. Nancy always was the one who kept the cell phone and you know, so everything was covered. And I'm like, ooh. I have to take my cell phone, you know, to, to bed with me tonight. And it was, it was the weirdest feeling. It was like this crushing feeling of responsibility. I've been a, a parent for many, many years. It wasn't like outside of my pay grade or anything. But I felt this crushing load of responsibility because I, I like, I ingested that illusion that it was all my responsibility because I was, that's when I kind of realized, oh, I'm a single parent. It's all on my shoulders. And, and thankfully, in that moment, I did my little night prayers, I, I realized, well, no, it's not all on my shoulders. You know, like, and actually, I can't, I can't do everything I need for my 19-year-old daughter. She's far away. There better be a God who's also watching out for her. It's a responsibility I share still with someone. I share it with God. And that was, so, that was such a helpful early insight for me uh, as a single parent for the first time. We do carry responsibility. It's part of what it means to be human compared to other creatures. So all the creatures that are represented in that scene, the only creatures that also have thrones are human beings, the 24 elders, the leaders representative of the, of the community there. Um, we do carry responsibilities, part of being human. Um, but of the 16 mentions, 15 refer to God's throne. So that gives you a little like a ratio sense, you know, of your responsibility and God's responsibility. Even at our most responsible, we are like Santa's little helpers. Not to confuse Santa Claus with God. I know there's a difference. But. So worship, the experience of worship is designed to recenter us by reminding us we are not the center of the universe. We are not the hub that all the spokes of the wheel of fortune are connected to. We are mortal flesh. We're made of dust. We have extreme limits. If we have responsibility, it's always limited. That's part of learning how to handle responsibility. You have to be aware of its presence and its limitations in your life. You know, like God has given us a, a little daily reminder of our limits. Um, one daily reminder of our limits of responsibility is the fact that we have to sleep. So in order to function, think about it, we're supposed to spend like a quarter to a third of our day checked out. We're asleep 
We don't know what's going on around us. We can't really, you know, function very well when we're sleeping in terms of getting the job done. And we have to do that. If we don't take a quarter to a third of our time checked out, like we can't function as human beings. That's a little signal from the universe <laughs> that our responsibility is limited. God, of course, is depicted in the Bible as the one who never sleeps. He's always on duty compared to us. Jesus had a funny little story. He used these agrarian uh, parables and he, parables of the kingdom of God. He said, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who sows his seed and then he goes to sleep. And while he's sleeping, you know, doesn't do anything, but the seed, you know, starts to germinate and grow and the kernel in the head. And when he wakes up, you know, like the magic has happened. And that's a picture. He's got a part to play in the kingdom, but he's not like generating this growth or making it happen. It's always a limited responsibility. So there's a beautiful image of this right in Revelations 4 of the relationship between our responsibility and God's. So as the worship unfolds in the vision, I like that about these worship vision scenes. There's this like contagion of worship happening. You know, it's like starting at the center and then it spreads out and it affects other people. We experience that when we're worshiping together. The, you know, the ding of the, the little bell gathers us and then the, the music strikes up and then some people start singing and then others start, there's like a contagion to worship. That's part of the dynamic of worship. But anyway, as worship is unfolding in the, in the vision, what do the 24 elders do who are sitting on those 24 thrones? They get up, they take off their crowns, another kind of symbol of responsibility and, and being in charge and all that, and they lay their crowns down before the throne. So they're either bowing down or they're prostate, and they're not throwing away their crowns. These are not a bunch of guys in a midlife crisis who just, you know, have to go back into adolescence and like just throw away all their responsibilities. They take their crowns and they lay them down before the, tr before the throne of God. They're still their crowns. You can imagine that when they get back up, they pick up the crowns, they put them back up on their heads. But there's something about worship that allows them for that period of time to take the crown off, lay it down at the throne of God, and just be free of the crown for a period of time. So that's something we can do every time we worship. I'm, I'm preaching to the over-responsible among us. Have you gotten the gist, you know? I'm preaching to the over-responsible among us, which is probably about 97% of the crowd. Um, we can do this when we worship. You know, wouldn't it be great if we actually had like physical signs, like a crown of our responsibility? You know, you might, like if you're a facilities manager, you know, I carry around these keys. I'm, I'm proud of my key ring. You know, the more keys you have on your ring, you know, the more you're responsible for. And I've got one, two, 
three, four, five. Interestingly, I have about four less keys on my ring than I used to about a year ago, and it's, I, I like it. It works better for me. But So, you know, this would be like the symbol of your responsibility if you're a facilities manager, if you're a, a doctor or a nurse. It might be your uniform, the white coat, if, you know, whatever your job would be. If you're a parent, it might be the baby monitor that you're kind of laying down. You know, wouldn't it be great if we could just, you know, picture that as we're worshiping. So let's make that our little silent meditation for the next minute or two. Um, I'll read that section again from Revelations 4, 9 through 11 of the elders getting up from their thrones and laying down their crowns. And um, just do the classic thing, place yourself in the scene. So the act of worship requires your imagination. You know, you can't Worship if you're not activating your imagination. We're using symbols for that reason. You know, bread and wine. The point is not bread and wine. It's the body and blood of Christ. So you have to use your imagination uh, to worship. Um, this, this, whole, this whole book of Revelations is like, is like amphetamine for your imagination. You know, it's like pow. It's like it's provoking our imagination. So place yourself in the scene, use your imagination. Think of the throne that those, those 24 elders are sitting on as they're like, they're being in charge, their responsibility for whatever they're responsible for. And as you're in a time of silence, maybe try to picture some physical symbol that stands for the kinds of things you're responsible for, the tools of your trade or whatever it might be in your family, work, community, whatever. And once that image is clear, just picture yourself standing up and laying it down at God's throne as an act of worship. Okay, let's listen to Revelation chapter 4, verse 9 through, the, through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Amen. Let's just be quiet for a little while and picture that. Let's sing that little um, chorus.
chorus from the Christmas carol. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. For he Oh uh-huh.